So once again, we're reading from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, through Isaiah chapter 53, verse verse 12. All right. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they shall they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth." By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is God's word. Thanks so much, Betsy. Well, good evening, everybody. It's great to be with you all on week two of Advent. If you don't know me, my name's Steve. I'm the lead pastor here. And for Advent, uh, which means arrival, we are walking through the book of Isaiah because Isaiah is talking to a group of suffering people. Uh, This is 700 years before Jesus' arrival. And he's just letting them know how um, the upcoming Messiah is going to come, gives them so much hope and security. And as I was looking at this unbelievable uh, passage, this passage is, it's one of the most famous passages in Isaiah, and for good reason, because maybe more than any other passage in Scripture, it shows us both what Jesus would do in his life and death, and why he would do what he did. And as I was thinking about this, I thought back to, this was about 10 years ago, and I was on a road trip with one of my friends who, he's not a Christian, and you know, as you 
get trapped in a car with somebody for 10 plus hours. You start talking about deeper things and Christianity got brought up. And so what, what, what he said to me was he said, you know, Steve, I'm, I'm agnostic, so I, I don't really know that Christianity is not true, but I also can't really say that I know it can be true either, and I think it's great that you're a Christian and blah, 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 blah. But he's like, Steve, come on. Do you, do you really believe the miracles that are in the Bible? Um, i.e., like, how can somebody who has higher than a fifth grade education actually believe in miracles in the Bible? And he said, you know, like the Red Sea parting and Elijah calling down fire from heaven and bread, you know, raining down from heaven. I think it's called manna. And, what I ended up doing was I tried to convince him why it was actually not that irrational that somebody with higher than an elementary school education believes in miracles, but here's what I wish I did. Um, and it didn't hit me until I was reading this passage this week. I wish what I had done was something like this. I wish I just opened up the Bible and read Isaiah 53 and said something like, you know, those miracles about the oceans parting, the seas parting, and whatnot, those are pretty hard to believe. But you know what's even harder to believe? <laughs> that someone with the station and power and majesty of Jesus actually did this for me. So that me, who's a guilty person, can be made righteous and given life. And I, I wish I'd let him know that. And I, th- I think it, it speaks to my own poverty when it comes to my understanding of the symbol behind me, the cross. And so just my hope for this evening as as we walk through this passage is is I'm going to do my best to simply get out of the way as we walk through this because this passage, more than others, as a preacher, you feel your insufficiency standing before the text. And so I think simplicity is going to be our ally here. And all I want us to do is walk through this passage and look at what did Jesus do in his life and death, and what's the meaning of it? You know, so so why does it actually matter? And more than anything, I hope that this symbol behind me, the cross, takes on new wonder and splendor for you. And so as you shoulder burdens in your heart, you know, be it like a relationship you're dealing with or feeling really deficient or shame you might be carrying, instead of going to the normal avenues that we tend to go through, you know, self-medication through like overwork or escapism or relationships or whatever it may be, you learn to cling to the cross. Um, I, I really think the Lord's going to minister to us in a special way this evening. So, um, so it's just, again, we'll walk through, first we'll just look at Jesus' life and death, and then number two, what's the, what's the meaning of it? And we're going to look at this in narrative form because that's basically what Isaiah um, does for us. And so try to, to feel along with me, especially for those of you who may be very familiar with this passage, feel with me what Jesus went through, and then we'll look at how this makes a, a radical difference in your life. Okay, so first, so starting with Jesus' life, uh, verse 2, it says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. So there's an image here of this growth, and, and what happens is this isn't a plant of vigor, but it's a plant of weakness, and the idea is this is appearing, you know, unwanted, and it's just clinging on to the root of a tree, and the imagery of dry ground uh, gets to the fact that the circumstances surrounding Jesus' death were not ideal. So we see that even long before the cross, Jesus' life was, you know, filled with affliction, and it began as early as when he exchanged the serenity of heaven for the rough prickly straw of a feeding trough and the poor arms of a marginalized mother. And since Jesus um, was born far away from home, he and his mom, they didn't enjoy, you know, the standard like baby showers and guests with, you know, like lots of loved ones and friends coming around them, but they were visited by who? They were attended by strangers, 
shepherds, and the Magi. When he was only a couple of years old, his parents, in fear of Herod, had to run away from any familiarity he knew, and they became refugees in Egypt. And they were, and then when they returned home to the place they called home, and it was it was called Nazareth. And the only reason why Nazareth was known was exclusively because it was a place that was unimpressive. His parents were the poorest of the poor. So imagine, you know, the ongoing worry and anxiety of having to monitor every dollar. You know, where is it going? And the shame he probably felt from wearing, you know, shoddy clothes and giving, you know, presenting the most meager offering at the temple because they were only able to buy what the poorest could afford. Verse 3 describes him as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So as Jesus grows up, he doesn't just know the stress of being poor and being a refugee, but he becomes well acquainted with the sorrows that only somebody who's slightly more mature, like an older child, can can understand. So we know Joseph, Jesus' dad. He was an incredible man who taught Jesus the scriptures and taught Jesus how to honor women, and uh, from what we can tell, was a strong presence in the life of Jesus. But the last time we see the, the father of Jesus was when Jesus was only 12 years old, implying that Jesus lost the strengthening presence of his father at an early age. As he begins his ministry, things only get heavier. So the very beginning of his ministry starts with him alone in the wilderness and tormented by Satan. So notice Satan doesn't send a lesser devil to go try to do what he needs to do with Jesus. Satan knows because of who Jesus is, only someone of his power and of his station can, can do what he needs to do with Jesus to try to win him over his side. And this reminds us that it probably wasn't just during those 40 days where Jesus was in the wilderness, but Jesus' entire ministry, more than any other church leader, more than any other missionary, more than any other individual, was constantly hounded and tormented by the arch devil himself. And all during his ministry, as he lives with the sole passion of offering life and compassion and comfort to the broken, what, how is he described in verse 3? Being despised and rejected. So he feels regularly the pain of open scorn and contempt. And often more, more painful than scorn and contempt is the ache that comes from being utterly ignored. So imagine being most of your life being treated as a non-entity. Like you're not even a person. And it wasn't just the crowds of this, but his, his, his family cast him aside. His friends abandoned him and misunderstood him. And as the the people who did approach Jesus, and they didn't go to him for who he was in and of himself, they just treated him as a tool to get things they wanted. Because Jesus was the, and is, the perfect human, what that means is he had perfect empathy, which means he felt perfectly. Which means when people with all their problems came around him, he felt absolutely the grief and sorrow that they cared In fact, the strain and sorrow so wore on his face. Uh, There's a place in John chapter 8 where people allude to the fact that they think Jesus is nearly 50 when he was only around 30. So much did the weight and pressure of his life show on his being. And yet all of this grief and sorrow is only the preamble to the worst part of his life, his his arrest, his trial, and the crucifixion. So verse 7 and 8. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. 
So Jesus, like a lamb prepared for the slaughter, is grabbed by a mob and then thrown into a court of such injustice and insanity that the judge himself looks to the crowd and says, what do you want me to do with him? Like, what kind of judge entrusts the sentence to the madness of the mob? And sure enough, the mob, the same group of people that was praising Jesus a week prior and saying, you know, Hosanna, like thanking him for coming into town, turned on him with such hostility and then shouted the dreaded words, crucify him. End of verse 8, it says, Jesus was stricken. So now the abuse of the crowds moves beyond the verbal and it gets physical. Jesus is tied to a pole where he's flogged, which was the customary introduction to a crucifixion. And so what the Romans did during the flogging was they used a whip. It was, it was a short handle, but had long cords and embedded into the cords were bits of bone and metal. And deep lacerations were administered across the victim's back, going so deep they often severed veins and arteries and exposed organs. A lot of people didn't even survive the flogging to get to the crucifixion. Roman citizens were exempt from flogging because it was so brutal, but Jesus wasn't fortunate enough to deserve or to have this status. But Jesus bore this willingly. Why? Verse 5. By his wounds, or you can translate that, by his stripes, we are healed. Finally, Jesus is forced to carry his own cross outside of the city. And he's so weak, is this a surprise, considering everything that he's gone through? Uh, He needs somebody else, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross for him. And Jesus is so disfigured by this point, not only from the physical abuse, but the emotional weight that he's been carrying, both from his ministry and as he anticipates what's going to happen, being judged by God on the cross, that he's he's so disfigured that he's described how? Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Meaning people weren't even asking, who is this? Or what did this person do to to deserve crucifixion? No, people were probably asking the question, is that even a human being? Eventually they make it to Golgotha, and there they lay Jesus on his back on top of the cross, and then what? Verse 5, he was pierced. He was pierced. So heavy iron nails are driven through his wrists and through his heel bones, and they hoisted him up between two criminals where he gasps for air. Everything about the crucifixion was designed to make it as humiliating and as slow and as painful as possible. And it's there that Jesus, shamed and left alone in the dark, cries out his final words and breathes his last. That's the story of the life of Jesus. It's, it's unrelenting, isn't it? It's, it's grim. Uh, even as I was just reading this just now, I wasn't, was almost, I wanted to stop. And, and so it's here what we need to do is to be careful to, we need to distinguish the difference between the event of the crucifixion and the meaning of it. And this is something that Pastor James Forsyth talked about. He 
uh, preached a great sermon on this that I'm borrowing a number of things from. And he brought up the point that we have to distinguish the difference between the event of the crucifixion and the meaning of it. Why? Because when a group of people, you know, even of this size, hears this story, how you, how, the different responses in a room are vast. So for some people, everything that we just read is nothing more than a, a legend. And so what do you do? You shrug your shoulders and you turn away. For other people, the crucifixion, it is a historical fact, but it's nothing more than another tragic story of a good guy who met a tragic ending. And so you might be emotionally moved for a little bit, but then eventually you walk away. For others, you may even understand you understand a little bit better, okay, this person was doing this for me somehow, but yet you want to hold on to the shame and the guilt that you carry. And so in a way, even though you want to be drawn, you turn and walk away. And yet for others, what you see is the savior of the world. And so despite its brutality, you're, you're strangely drawn toward it. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is the meaning behind everything that Jesus did? Because how you respond is, <laughs> and it's the difference between life and death and joy and despair itself. And so why did Jesus do what he did? What's the meaning behind everything we just looked at? And where you see it the most concentrated is in verses four to seven. So verses four to seven hammer home the absolute voluntariness of everything that Jesus did. So it's easy to pity Jesus, thinking that he's just a helpless victim here. But when you read more closely, both here and in the Gospels, you see that Jesus was in absolute control. And so there's language here like Jesus lifting off our sorrows and our transgressions and putting them on himself. It says he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. This is all voluntary. It says he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. So why did Jesus keep his mouth shut? Well, because if he wanted to with a word, he could have dropped everyone dead on the pavement. No, but instead he continued to go forward. No, this was all voluntary and What's incredible about this is what this means is Jesus is the only person who's ever given up his life and suffered voluntarily. He says himself in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And you say, oh, well, you know, that's great. But I know a lot of people who voluntarily, voluntarily given up their life to save others. Mm, not really. Because while for you or me or for other people, we can decide often the circumstances of our death, you realize that you can't choose to die. Because you and I are dying right now. We're in the process of that. You realize that, right? But Jesus didn't have to die at all. And yet the pain of it, the horror of it, everything we just read through, he did voluntarily. Why? Isaiah 53, 12 says, He was numbered with the transgressors and bore the sin of many. And Jesus quotes this in Luke 22. So the night before his death, he looks at his friends and he, he quotes that he has to be numbered with the transgressors. And he said, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And what Jesus is saying by I need to be numbered with the transgressors is not that he is a transgressor, but he needs to be counted as a transgressor. Flogged, beaten, pierced. Why? So that anyone who is a transgressor, which is everybody in this room, doesn't have to be. But he goes one, he, he does one better than that. Not only does he take on what is owed us, he goes a step further. And verses 10 and 11, they say this, Though it was the will of the Lord to crush him, he shall see his offspring. 
This is speaking to Jesus is going to rise again and he's going to see like the, the victory, you and me, anybody who trusts in him of what he accomplished. And then it says, verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Meaning even in the anguish of Christ, he sees what he's going to give us and he sees who we're going to become and it fills him with happiness. And then it says, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. In verse 11. And what this is saying is, Jesus deserved the peace, we deserve the punishment. But that's not what happened. Jesus got the punishment, and we get the peace. And what this means is that this is at the heart of the gospel. Jesus Christ is treated as if he had done everything you have done, so that when you believe in him, you are treated as if you have done everything Jesus has done. That's the gospel. That's radical. That's unbelievable. And here, especially as we think about Advent, this is why it's not only necessary, but so priceless and life-changing that the symbol of our faith is a cross. So why isn't the symbol of our faith a manger? So we think about Christmas coming up, right? So that, that feels very good. Jesus coming, he's in a manger, and he's with us. But if the symbol of our faith is a manger, what that means is we may have God with us, but we still have to carry our burdens and we still die in sin. Why isn't the symbol of our faith a scroll? Because Jesus was a great teacher. Well, if the symbol of our faith is a scroll, that means we're just a little bit more educated as we carry our burdens and die for our sins. What about the symbol of our faith being clouds or a throne? Because that's where Jesus ascended to in glory and honor after he rose from the dead. Well, yes, that means we stand in awe of Jesus, but still we do so as we bear our sins and die in our sin. No, our symbol is a cross because as we gaze at the cross, we see that Jesus is pierced for our transgressions so that we can live. As we cling to the cross, we feel that we are healed by his wounds. To many people, to many people, the cross of Christ is nothing. There's no honor there. There's no glory there. There's no splendor there. There's no relief there. But for those with the eyes to see, the cross of Christ is everything. Because it's the cross that tells you you are objectively forgiven. It's the cross that tells you no matter what assails you, they have no power over you. It's the cross that tells you that you are not the things you've done or the things that you've failed to do, but you are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. It's the cross that tells you you don't have to carry any shame over what you've done or failed to do. And it's the cross that tells you that death for you is not, does not mean your life ends in loneliness and despair and ruin. What it means is it's just the doorway into a new country with green fields and blue skies and fresh air where you are met by the one who bore wounds so that you can be healed. And so, as we gaze at this cross, this Advent season, the, the main thing I want us to do is to, to worship. Just to put, fall before it and simply say thank you.
And then, and then as we do that, we... No, I don't even want to get into action. Um, all I just hope for you guys is I know there's some of you right now who are still wallowing in either self-pity or shame or you're just holding on to something because you think it's up to you to handle. And with all due respect, that is the most arrogant attitude to have because what you're saying is, Jesus, what you did, yeah, was enough for you and it's enough for God, but it's not enough for me. And so please just cling to the cross of Christ and cherish those words that by the wounds of Jesus, you are healed. You don't have to hold on to it anymore. And you don't have to fear. Let's go to God in prayer. Um, <laughs> Heavenly Father, I thank you for the depth, but also just utter simplicity of what you're telling us through Isaiah. And Lord, I um, just for all of us, Lord, I ask that you will help us. I ask that you will help the cross to be the most vivid reality uh, that we gaze at. And uh, more than that, that we will see the person, Lord Jesus Christ, who did what he did for us and continues to do what he does for us as he intercedes and empowers us, as he intercedes for us and empowers us today. And I thank you for what Advent means and that that will uh, take on a new power in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.